and welcome to Trek Companion. This is episode 178. I am your host, Brian Williams. I am Adam Caesar. I'm Stephen Embry. Today we are going to uh, start discussing Star Trek the Animated Series uh, with the first four episodes, including Beyond the Farthest Star, Yesteryear, One of Our Planets is Missing, and The Lorelei Signal. Here we go. <laughs> Beyond the Farthest Star, Season 1, Episode 1, Production Code 22004, Original Air Date, September 8, 1973, Directed by Hal Sutherland, Written by Samuel L. Peoples, Featuring the voice of William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Dewan, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, and Majel Barrett. While exploring on the outermost rim of the galaxy, the Enterprise is pulled into the orbit of a dead star. Trapped there, the crew discovers that there is a massive derelict 300 million year old pod ship trapped with them as well. Captain Kirk beams aboard the huge ship with a boarding party that includes Spock, Dr. McCoy, and Engineer Scott, where they learn it was once home to an insectoid race. Captain Kirk, the ship's computers. Something's going through every storage bank. It seems to be taking control of the whole ship. Spock, can you rig a low-frequency shield like the one on the alien ship on our navigation console? It would have a very small field. Do it. All right, Star Trek the Animated Series. Uh, was this the first time you guys have watched this in high definition? It certainly was for me. Yes. It's the first time I've ever seen him. It's the first time you've ever seen it at all? At all. Wow, that's amazing! It's just something I never got around to. Um, you know, they I don't ever recall them being on TV when I was a kid and stuff like that, and so that's kind of how I, you know... That's so cool, though. You're hearing all these original voices. It's almost like real Star Trek that you've never seen. Yeah, it's like, it's yeah, like a yeah. lost tell, season for me in a weird way. Tell us what that's like, dude. I had no idea. Um, Yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I think, I, I think you told me to watch an episode a couple months ago, and that was the first one I'd seen... Um, you wanted me to watch an episode. I know I've seen one episode recently in the last year, but um, yeah, this is the first time I've ever seen Beyond the Farthest Star or any of them. So, um, like I said, it wasn't that I, I just never had the opportunity to see them. They weren't on television where I lived as a kid, and um, I, you know, we, you know, Brian and I used to work in a lot of rental stores. I don't recall them ever being available there when we rented and stuff like that. And so, this is something I just it never came it never came up where I had an opportunity to see him. And um, when we started doing this cast several years ago, I know that I knew they were out there and I knew they were available, but I decided to see if we were going to do them as, um, you know, in our podcast. And so I thought it would be kind of cool to watch them the first time. That's great. So how are you watching them? I have to watch them on Netflix. I wanted to buy them on iTunes, but they're not available. You can get them through CBS Stream. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I just ended up having to watch a Netflix. They look pretty good. Yeah, you know, I had read a review when the Blu-rays came out a year ago that, um, you know, prepare yourself. This this actually doesn't look that amazing in HD, and that's pretty true. It 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 barely looks better than the SD to me, but that's fine. You know, I'm I'm really glad that we have this show, and I'm really glad that we have uh, have it in the best quality that we can get it, considering obviously it was incredibly low budget. Uh, for the time yeah no but that's true there were there were many years where it was actually really hard to get a hold of this show i remember i'd only seen it in bits and pieces and then finally <laughs> my my roommate when i first moved to la like 2002 he had a a laser disc player and i and i knew that they had released a box laser disc box set of the entire series, uh, so I I bought it, the Laserdisc set on eBay or something, and then watched them all. <laughs> um, so, what's kind of the backstory of this? How did it get going? Um, well, you know, there was this incredible success of the syndication of the original series, and this was kind of a cheap, fast stopgap. Uh, you know, before they would end up. Well, what was going to be planned as um, another TV show that, of course, would end up turning into a, a feature series. But, you know, the ratings for this were 
always pretty poor, uh, so it didn't last very long. But I believe it's still the only the only Star Trek series to win like best series in its category, an Emmy. <laughs> Was it an animated series it won, at the time? It won Best Children's Show, oh. and um, I just read this a couple weeks ago. It, it was it was a going up against um, Captain Kangaroo and, or I can't remember the other one. Of course, it was exciting to get all of the original cast voice except for Walter. They did that. That's how. That's how much how low budget this was, folks. They <laughs> one person one person made the difference yeah. between making the show and not. They will later. They gave him to make up for it. They gave him a. They let him write an episode. But, yeah, uh, Steve, what about you? Like how, you know, where is this at? You you've talked many times about growing up watching the original series episodes with your father and stuff. Like when did mm-hmm. you see these? These weren't on your your father's list. No, I mean I was aware of it. I was aware of it, but um, I didn't see it until the DVDs came out. So it was about 12 years ago or whatever I think it was. Yeah, I only saw it back then. And so this is really the second time through is all, I think, pretty much. Oh, man. I I kind (laughs) of... Hey, they weren't available in any way, right? So I did did, um, save a copy of those laser discs. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. I'm surprised I never gave you that because... uh, (laughs) I made my own DVDs at the time. Well, it also had the strange distinction of being, you know, until, in the grand scheme of things, relatively recently, not part of the canon of Star yeah. Trek. So With I didn't even know how it really did. year, which seemed like everybody always considered that canon, even the right. games, et cetera. But, right. Know. So I kind of, di- I didn't I think, dismiss it, but I didn't, like, concern myself overly with it way back when, you know. So, But now it's just, you know, it's like something, spe- it's something special. It's like the little hidden episodes or something, you yeah. know. I don't think this is ex- entirely accurate, but to me it always felt like, you know, there were these years, because every every time that I saw it come out on video, there there were some VHS, I remember seeing something, and definitely there was that Laserdisc box set. The Laserdisc box set was really pretty the way it was put together, but it was not Paramount, CBS, you know? It was, mm-hmm. it was like this, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was actually Filmation, but it wasn't the same company that was that was putting out all the live action stuff. And then I guess they sort of actually bought it. And it always felt to me like when Paramount didn't own it, <laughs> it wasn't canon. Yeah. Uh, and then when they did, it was. <laughs> because people like us, that's the difference between, you know, a fun oddity and must see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, all right. So let's. So are these considered canon or not? Or just. It's still kind of borderline. It's it is more recently that people have changed their stance, and now you hear that it w- was that it is. When Gene Roddenberry was alive, it wasn't considered canon except yesteryear. Okay. But nowadays, it feels like it. You know, we're gonna encounter stuff in later episodes that are totally uh, plucked for future Star Trek. So it's hard not to give this show. Let's do. You know, the credit it deserves now, I think. As evidenced by the fact that, you know, for the 50th anniversary, Paramount didn't do a whole heck of a lot, or CBS didn't do a whole heck of a lot. But when they put out a box set of the original series crew's adventures, it was the original series, their movies, and this show. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is a sense that it has a place uh, in Star Trek now. Let's talk just just a little bit about kind of the look of the show. I think it's impressive, given the budget and stuff, that I can immediately tell who all the... The character design and work, I think, is pretty good. I can tell who everybody is. Right. That sounds dumb, right. but it's not because of the color of their shirts. Like, their faces and things, I think all that stuff is, is pretty good. Th- this show does a good job of, of taking advantage of the fact that it's animated and doing stuff like putting in aliens on the bridge or you know, uh, huge ships out there, uh, or seeing parts of Vulcan that we've never seen before, stuff like that. But um, I think I wanted even more out of that aspect of it. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. That was the first thing I noticed that, you know, obviously early 70s, you know, the the there wasn't any CGI or it was extremely in the early, early, early stages. So yeah, the only way to kind of create these cool environments was through animation. 
So I kind of, I did, I kind of enjoyed that. I mean, it's the, the to me, it's dated. It, it definitely feels like the, the 70s as far as animation goes. Um, but um, yeah, I thought it was kind of cool seeing an alien on the bread, the bridge. Um, and, you know, different, you know, different parts of Vulcan that we see that we're going to talk about later. These first few episodes were actually voiced by having all of the cast together at Filmation's offices, but I think they never do that again. I think after that, it's like Shatner in New York in backstage before he does a play recording into a tape recorder <laughs> and he's on vacation. I think that's how most of the show is, which is why you get a lot of weird kind of tonal shifts in the voice acting. Uh, but these first few episodes, they actually all got together for the first time since production on the original series wrapped. They mm-hmm. got together in 1973 to record uh, these first few episodes. Uh, let's talk about the voice act. We don't we don't have to do like a complete overview. We can do this as we go. But the, one other thing I wanted to talk about real quick, kind of the the voice acting. I think that Shatner's acting style probably works better for, <laughs> for animation. Um, <laughs> Well, I was going to say then Nimoy's. I think so much of what Nimoy does are the, you know, are these really subtle things with his face and and obviously that's mm-hmm. never coming through here. But Shatner's frequently, you know, bigger than life stuff works. And the other thing I wanted to say about the voice work, Michelle Nichols frequently I'm like, wow, she's really good. <laughs> yeah. And then I often wonder at the time, did they think that Jimmy Dewan was really great at all these different voices? I think so. Did they think, wow, he sounds so different? Because <laughs> <laughs> you hear like a Mel Blanc or something, you hear somebody that's really talented and does all these different voices, you're like, I right. can't believe that's the same person. Well, Major Barrett, I thought, was kind of that way too, at least in uh, what we've seen so far in this. Like that, the Laura Lay one, my goodness. And it's like, yeah. just everyone's got the same voice, eh, you know. Uh yeah Yeah, it makes it feel creepy (laughs) right okay so let's talk about this episode specifically you guys remember what this episode was about (laughs) i don't mean about but i mean about because that's one downside to this that there's so many shots that will feel the same from one to the other again probably because of the budget but unless they're doing something fantastic like i mean fantastical you know like yesteryear where it really that's very very clear you need almost those entirely different visuals to make this kind of show stand out more. And I think like the first and, you know, beyond the farthest star and one of our planets is missing. Those are just similar enough in feel for me that I have to like, yeah, review my notes to make sure I'm talking about the right one. The one thing that I kind of, I liked about this first, this kind of the science behind it, they got pulled into a, you know, a collapsed star. I thought that was kind of a, you know, kind of a, a cool thing. You know, it's science relatable. It's not just something that's fantastical. You know, it's something magical that happens. So I kind of like that concept. And I kind of felt like they were a little more techie and they were talking about right, right declination and ascension, you know, and pinpointing co- coordinates. Yeah. So I, you know, initially, you know, like right off the bat, you know, um, in this first episode, at least there was a, there was some tech talk that was kind of, you know, how you would probably hear it on a spaceship. It was kind of interesting. I like this, you know, this huge ship that's been in orbit for 300 million years. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's, it's such a ridiculously large number (laughs) and such a ridiculously large ship that it's just beyond comprehension almost. But the actual story itself, once they get in there and the creature entity, whatever, follows them back, didn't feel all that unlike something episode that we've seen a few times before, mm-hmm. uh, especially after it was on back on the on board the ship with them. Yeah, it kind of wrapped everything up pretty quick. I didn't quite even understand how they got through that star. You know, it just seemed like they warped through it. <laughs> they didn't actually go around it. I thought it was kind of like I kind of was saddened by the ending. You know, like the ship kind of or whatever. You know, it was kind of like don't leave me here or something. It was like pretty pathetic. Yeah. That entity he's, yeah, he sounds really, which is funny. Cause at no point before that, did he, um, he, well, it's Jimmy doing right. <laughs> at no point before that, did the entity say or do anything less than right. obey, obey, do what I say, you know, right. um, 
So yeah, it's a nice little. It has enough of those kind of little moments to give it a human feel, to give to make it stand out from what I imagine the rest of Saturday morning cartoons were like at the time. Um, I mean, this is something we can. We'll I'll save until we talk about yesteryear. Just we're breaking it up a little bit, but you know, like how much right. of, I'm not sure how much of a kids show it is. But these are the kind of things that make this still watchable, you know, um, 40 years later. Hearing hearing that entity, you know, scream, mm-hmm. don't leave me, the loneliness or whatever. Right. I do like, I like the way the, the Enterprise looks in animation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks really cool. It's, such a great it's still i mean it's always and forever such an incredible design but it that it that it's just as effective as hand drawn animation is pretty cool uh is this episode about anything well it's yeah it's i had a hard time with it because yeah the ending is kind of it's kind of you know like you said you know this entity is appears to be a malice up until that point when then where you have to feel sorry for him the creatures that actually own the ship that the entity was on apparently you know barricaded themselves in and sacrificed themselves if i understood it correctly to mm-hmm. prevent the entity from escaping getting out which is effective for 300 million years until the enterprise comes along <laughs> <laughs> well it was trapped by the gravity of the star right okay yeah so it needed remember it needed the starship to get yeah so that was the premise that needed the enterprise to escape the um the gravity of the star so there's a little bit of self sacrifice in there on the part of that alien race from way back when but i think overall i think it's fairly i don't know it's almost like a generic episode i mean i applaud it for doing things you can't do in live action like a huge ship you know very bizarre and all of that but yeah it's not particularly interesting you know the story it needed 25 more minutes to kind of flesh it out. <laughs> right, right. Well, mm-hmm. I will say this for it. It's effectively a pilot of a new show showing that the original series works in animation. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was successful. And the structure up to make it work as a, you know, has with, with half the running time. Exactly. You know, I'll say that, I mean, um, you know, it's hard to come up with what this episode was trying to say or what it was about, but it was very, I found it very interesting. I mean, you know, I wasn't even sure. I kind of thought that spaceship was some sort of living creature and like, you know, you know, things were busting out of pods there. Cause I, so that's kind of thought what I thought it might be until they went in, until they actually went into this control room. Um, so that's kind of, so it kind of, there's a little bit of a mystery and that kind of thing going on with this. So it's, um it's, it definitely flows well and it's a decent story for an animated television show over the early seventies. Well, let's do six degrees for Beyond the Farthest Star. I'm just going to give a blanket uh, qualifier. I won't do it again for all the animated series discussions. Uh, they pretty much just use <laughs> the same few people for all the voices. There really aren't people that I can do a traditional six degrees questions for. These will just mostly be uh, trivia questions. And again, I'm only going to ask one question per. We're going to we're discussing four episodes per podcast. And in each six degrees question, there will just be one question. So we're going to ask four episode, four questions throughout the course of this uh, podcast episode. Um, Adam, do you want this one or do you want yesteryear? Um, I'll take this one. It's fine. This episode, we're talking about Beyond the Farthest Star. This episode premiered 8 September 1973, and it was written by Samuel Peoples. Peoples also wrote the episode that premiered exactly seven years earlier. Name it. Premiered seven years earlier. Um, I don't know. Steve? The Man Trap? You are correct, and I realize now I screwed up the question. Hmm. Did I get half a point? <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to give you the point because you, you you answered the question that I was I was asking. Yeah, what what was the the premiere of the original series? 
But now I realize that's not that's not what Samuel Peoples wrote. He wrote mm. he wrote where no man has gone before. That's not where it premiered on eighth September nineteen sixty six. But you understood what I was asking, so um, yes, you get that point. <laughs> you got the spirit of the the question. Yes, right. oh, I, very good. So, no, uh, no emails, please. Samuel Peoples wrote where no man has gone before. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Yesteryear, Season 1, Episode 2, Production Code 22003, Original Air Date, September 15, 1973. Directed by Hal Sutherland, written by D.C. Fontana. Additional voices by Mark Leonard as Sarek, Billy Simpson as Young Spock, and Keith Sutherland as Young Sepik. Captain Kirk and Spock return from a time-traveling research project they have been conducting with the use of the Guardian of Forever and Starfleet historians. When they emerge from the portal, they discover that no one on board the Enterprise recognizes Spock. Kirk and Spock are further surprised to see that an Andorian officer, Commander Thillian, has replaced Spock as first officer. In the new timeline, history has recorded that Spock died at, at the age of seven, undergoing the Kaswan ordeal on Vulcan. Spock, did Selig look like you do now? I believe so, Captain. And I know what you're thinking. It was I who saved myself that other time. But this time, you were in Orion's past with us when the historians had the time vortex replay of Vulcan history. You couldn't be in two places at once, so you died as a boy. Yesteryear, I feel confident in saying this episode is probably pretty universally praised as the best episode of the animated series. That isn't necessarily the reason we say it was for a long time considered canon when others weren't. Although I'm sure if it had been terrible, then maybe that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> uh, but it was mostly, you know, this was DC Fontana. She did so much great work with uh, Spock in the original series and the way she followed it up and, you know, getting Mark Leonard back. This was the kind of thing that really kind of defined Spock's character. I haven't watched this, I haven't watched the animated series in years, certainly. I have not watched yesteryears since the J.J. movies. Um, Boy, that's, it's very brief, but that scene at the beginning when those other little kids are picking on him, it sure reminded me of that moment in uh, the you know J.J.'s first Star Trek movie when those other kids, mm-hmm. they get into the fight. This was, what, 36 years before that. It's pretty amazing. Right. right. Steve, what are your first thoughts on yesteryear? I think this is really good, and um, not just good for the animated series or something like that. I mean, I, I think it's safe, like you said, it's safe to say it's the best one, but I think it's really good. And I mean, especially considering how, how short these are, you know, the half the length of, uh, well, less than half the length of the original series episodes, 20 some minutes, and they convey all of this information and have something to say and it keeps you entertained. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a challenge. And, it, and I think they do a really good job in this. And, uh, um, except that young Spock kind of whines, and that kind of gets yeah. tiresome. But anyway, otherwise, I, I I really I really enjoyed this episode. And there's a lot of canon for Trekkers, and um, it's also just an entertaining story with um, a message too. So yeah, I, I really like it. And Adam, what are your first thoughts here? I'd have to agree with Steve. I definitely enjoyed this. It was um, you know we you know this is all set up. You know, obviously from the original series, we know that um, Spock is half human, half Vulcan. You know, we get and we get pieces. We get, I mean, you get a lot. You get chunks of it in the original series, but I mean, an interesting way to go is to, like flashbacks. And obviously, since it's sci-fi, you can actually just go back in time and, and witness it yourself. So, um, um, it was definitely interest. It was an interesting story to have, you know, the older Spock interact with his younger self. You know, obviously that, you know, maybe maybe JJ drew some inspiration from this um, episode as well because he did, you know, similar themes in the, the new Trek films. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the episode. There's a lot in it. It doesn't, it feels a little bit, it feels longer than 30 minutes or 24 minutes or however long they are. But yeah, there's a lot in here. Um, it's one of those things you're like, ah, oh, man, this would have been a good, you know, hour-long episode. This is a good, a good episode to ask this question about is this a kid's show or not? Because let's say you're a fan of the original series in the 60s and 
you're sorry when they take it off the air. A couple years go by, a few years go by, you hear they're going to bring it back as an animated series. You're probably just excited to, for them to be doing anything, especially after you hear they're going to have the cast. Then it's going to be on Saturday mornings. Uh, then you hear about this episode yesteryear, which is going to feature Spock as a little boy. You know, you're probably getting to the point where you're like, oh, this is just going to be a kid's show. I think this is not a kid's show. I think this episode is a pretty good example of why it isn't a kid's show, which is ironic, ironic given that it mostly features a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, this is probably the reason more than anything else that this show bombed, because it had, even though at this point Star Trek is very popular, this had the image of being a kid's show. So the adults in, in Fancy Original Series didn't watch it because it was supposed to be for kids. And then if any kid actually did try it because it was supposed to be for kids, they're like, this isn't for kids. <laughs> so they got nothing. Um, <laughs> no, I would I would agree with you, Brian, because it it feels like Star Trek. I mean, you know, obviously you have all the original voices, so that adds to it. Um, I don't know if I, I would feel differently if it was a total different cast. But I mean, the storylines feel like Star Trek, even the first episode, you know, it's like new light, you know, that these are the storylines that were told and the kinds of stories that were told in the original series. I mean, obviously this is animated, it's not live action, but I, this would have been a great episode to have in the original series, I think, in, in a more on uh, the longer format to kind of fill in some of the, the blanks that are that come out of this episode. Even even though they'd fit a lot in it and it's a good moving story and you get everything in it, you you kind of felt like, you kind of feel left wanting more. Oh, you know, this notion of kids' show is interesting, and I don't want to... Uh, this this could be something one could discuss for hours, probably. That, you know, the idea of what qualifies as a kids' show, what makes it that. Are we, are we saying that it's dumbed down and the content is marketed to the attention span of a kid? Maybe, you know, um, in which case I would think like 90% of what comes out of Hollywood on film is kids shows almost, you know, because in a sense it's marketed and tailored toward an attention span issue, you know, in a way. But, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is a kid's show and, but it is interesting contextually to think back in 1973, what you would think as a Trek fan when this came out, because I, I suspect that the vast majority would have thought an animated series, and it's not going to be taken all that seriously. They may be excited to see, to you know, hear these voices again, to see Trek again in some respect. But you know, I, I suspect back then, you know, animation was mostly considered. I mean, heck, there's a plenty of people now that think animation is only a kid's medium. You know, and back right. then, I suspect it was universal, pretty much. Well, I mean, you think about so what was um. When you go back to anime, I mean, you know, it's what primarily Disney. You got Warner's. I mean, well, I mean, I go back and I watch some of the, um, the, the the Looney Tunes and stuff like that. That's they're they don't it doesn't those don't even particularly feel like kids shows. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I did play these first two episodes for my six-year-old son, and a little bit, not not so much beyond the farther farthest star, but by the time we got to yesteryear, he was de- he definitely he turned to me and said. They talk a lot in this show. (laughs) When it feels like, in a way, even more talking than the live-action original series is, you know, is what's driving the story. Well, yeah, I was. I mentioned that from the the first episode, the for the for the start. There's a lot of tech talk in the first, you know, two or three minutes of the episode. You know, talking about the science and all that that goes into this and. I'm sure, like, you know, the concepts of this episode, time traveling and then going back and, you know, I mean, if you're four or five years old in the early 70s, you probably, there's, your understanding of time travel probably isn't that great. I mean, it's probably more so for kids today, but back then, I mean, so is this some, how old do you have to be to kind of understand the concepts of time travel and interacting with yourself and messing up the timelines and all that kind of, I mean, there, it's a fairly complicated thing to think about just on your own. So I don't, yeah, I don't know how well that's the storyline would play for, you know, and I guess what six to 12 year olds. Well, let's, let's talk about this storyline a little bit. I mean, we got the opening fine where, Oh, who is that guy? You know, it's Spock. Once he determines he has to go back, mm-hmm. it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool. They, they bring back the guardian of forever. But what we all think about this episode, what makes it so good really is just once he actually gets to Vulcan, 
you know, seeing Sarek, seeing uh, young Spock have that interaction with the other children, um, seeing him go on this journey with his pet and and ultimately mm. actually choosing a Vulcan path, which that's that's all in there, you know, like like I think you were saying, Steve, about how much they're doing with such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. That's all the stuff that happens in this episode. It's it is really really packed. It doesn't. It never feels rushed. Mm-hmm. In a way, all animation has that kind of have that like those that core underpinning of everything is faster. But I don't feel like the story is necessarily rushed. But this really does feel like a legitimate follow up to some of our favorite episodes of the original series, which is about the best compliment that I think I can give it. You know, when Mark Leonard is voicing Sarek, I think that's Sarek. Because it I mean mm-hmm. it's the writing, the acting, it's it's there. I think of this when I think of Sarek throughout Star Trek and I imagine the original series. I imagine the animated series because of this. I imagine the movies, I imagine Next Gen. I see the character move through all of that. Um these are mm-hmm. This is the highest praise I can give the entire series is what I'm giving yesteryear right now when I say these things, that this is Star Trek for me. You brought up the animation for in the first episode. I mean, the, the the animators, at least in the face work, did a great job. That looks like Sarek from the, you know, the, the, the facial animations are, are, are I, I'll give them top-notch credit on that because they all look like the actors. I mean, they really do. I mean, I'm... So that also adds to it. It helps quite a bit. What do you guys think this episode is about? Um, well, there's a coming of age aspect to this episode. Um, you know, choosing your life path, um, kind of growing up, maturing. Steve, I think it's it's pretty deep because it's it's definitely the coming of age thing. It's also the notion of how, uh, what, what maybe at the time you perceive as a, a relatively minor event can be so. Uh, influential kind of the the butterfly effect notion you know and it also it's fairly unique in this notion of um the gravity of the death of a pet to to somebody i mean i don't think that's i don't know if that's been addressed in trek otherwise you know i mean it sounds kind of absurd but it was that was very controversial for a children's cartoon in the early 70s yeah so there's a lot of talks about that right cuz he cuz he goes back thinking i saved a life and I'm going to, you know, to save a life is what the key of this is. And the other, and then it turns into a, a life lesson, you know, through uh, allowing a, you know, a, a pet to die with dignity and all this kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty unique element to, to a Trek show as far as I know. And I think it, it talks, it, it, it lends credence to the notion of that, the idea of the, these, these events that you think are just small little nuggets in, in history can have such a profound effect on your choices later on in life. I mean, so, so again, this is, this is just, this is just really good. I mean, it's got, it fires on all cylinders. It has something to say. It's, it's unique. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I'm impressed. All right, let's do six degrees for yesteryear. Steve. Yep. Name the season four episode of Enterprise that features both Vulcan's Forge and a rather deadly sealet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, something that I just said. <laughs> yeah. Is maybe sort of the title partially. Oh right. Kind of. The Forge? You are correct, The Forge. Steve has two. Moving on. One of Our Planets is Missing, Season 1, Episode 3, Production Code 22007. Original air date, September 22, 1973. Directed by Hal Sutherland, written by Mark Daniels. The Enterprise encounters a giant cloud that consumes planets that lie in its path. They determine it is heading for Matili's Matilis, home to the Federation colony governed by retired Starfleet officer Robert Weasley. The Enterprise must discover a way to head off this threat before Matilis is destroyed. Captain Kirk takes the Enterprise inside the cloud and attempts to stop it. Avoiding obstacles and proceeding from one chamber to another, the ship begins to lose power. It is possible this cloud in which we are entrapped is a living thing. 
the cloud is alive. Seeing Spock mind meld with a cloud <laughs> made me think that he would be handy like on a rainy day. <laughs> yeah, Adam, one of our planets is missing. Go ahead. Where do we find it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. This episode, somewhere in the middle, kind of started reminding me of. Do you guys remember the movie um, Inner Space? When it ran yeah. Played and so yeah, and I'm, I can't remember. There's another movie like that from the late '60s, early '70s. I think Raquel Welch is in it, where they inject a tiny little ship into a body. So that's kind of just kind of what it made me think of. Once they started getting into the cloud, and you had the little digestive enzymes coming after the ship. Um, Fantastic voyage. Yeah, there you mm-hmm. go. Um, so that's kind of kind of what it reminded me of, you know, you know, obviously in space. Um, it's a, it, uh, I think it works pretty well in an an, this animated series. I don't think this is a storyline that I don't would would have probably not turned out very well if they tried it live action, but it works in an animated show, I think, because um, you can have, you know kind of show a little bit more what's going on inside the digestive system and the brain and stuff like that. Um, it kind of wraps up quickly. I would, I liked it for the first run. Feel It does feel a little bit like um, Doomsday Machine. I know that was a an influence for this episode. This was the Mark Daniels one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Mark Daniels, of course, directed a lot of the episodes original series. He wasn't really necessarily a writer. They let him write this episode. What's the the cheapest writing we can get? Is what it probably feels like. <laughs> Everything about this show. And that's not a, that's not a complaint. It's just that when you make the original series season three feel like Game of Thrones budget, that means you got a lot of small budget. So they contact the guy the. Who was the the guy on the planet? Wesley. Mm-hmm. I did like how they kind of brought back a character from the original series just to do it. You know, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and of course, uh, they made a creative choice to voice him with uh, who was it? <laughs> <laughs> Major Barrett. Oh no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> One more try. Oh, keep we doing. That's right. Yes. Um. But yeah, Kirk, Kirk's asking him, you know, because he can only evacuate a limited number of people, you know, and he's like, "How are you going to decide who to evacuate?" And I, I wrote down, "How?" This is what it sounded like his tone to me, and the pause, like he, "How are you going to decide who to evacuate?" And his response was, "There is no choice, Jim. I'm getting the hell out of here." <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Uh, but I know, he says something about the children, which is always the safe move. Right. Just a little tiny percentage of them, but they're children. <laughs> yeah. Of course, they'll need me to take care of them, so I have to go. Right, right, of course. There's a little short bit there where Kirk is asking McCoy about... Because Kirk decides, well, if we're going to kill this 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 entity if it's going to save all these other people, and it doesn't matter if it's mm. you know alive or not yeah. or what. Um, and he has, he has a brief debate about that. Doesn't doesn't feel like it lasted too long, but you know you got half as much screen time. Right. Okay. I did notice it felt like there had a, there was a lot of techno babble in here, which I don't. I think of next gen DS9 Voyager, massive techno babble, right? Mm-hmm. That's not. I, I I often enjoy it. I'm not complaining about it. You know the whole tech the tech thing. I I'm I'm not. I don't have a problem with that most of the time. I'm I'm used to it. Uh, but in the original series, not so much. Mm-hmm. This episode felt like there was a lot of techno babble. Yeah. Scott has this really long explanation about how he's going to transport in some antimatter and what they're going to use it for and uh it, it was just it was surprising. I was very conscious of it in a way that I don't recall being conscious of it before when watching this series. For a kids show too. Yeah. How how can you tell if it's a kids show? How much techno babble does it have? <laughs> <laughs> the Flintstones. Got a lot of techno. You mentioned that you know this kind of felt like Doomsday Machine. It kind of actually, kind of had some similarities to me to the the motion picture. Oh yeah, I can see that totally. Well, Spock gets in a spacesuit, not a life belt or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that what they were called? Not life belts. What were they called? Oh heck, what was the deal? Um, 
Life belt. That sounds like they're going to jump up the Titanic. Life support belts. Life, Life support. support. I made a note of it in the first episode. Hmm. Yet another thing that I'm sure they did to save some money, because then you right. don't have to redraw the characters. You just put right. this glowy thing around them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're right. I hadn't thought of that, Adam. In motion pictures, Spock gets in that suit. He goes out there, and then he basically tries to melt with the thing through right. thin air, which is exactly what he does here. Yeah, it's a big cloud heading for Earth to destroy it, so, yeah, kind of. I do. It is kind of cool, though. You know, the end of this episode where Spock basically convinces it, "Hey, you're gonna hurt people. Please stop and go away." And unlike everything dies or gets destroyed or whatever, you know, this this is a a real good original series feeling kind of ending where it doesn't end with a with bloodshed or you know a pet uh, dying. A pet dying. <laughs> You know, yeah, like uh, like I said, you know, the, even though I didn't like this episode as much as the, the first two, but it, it has the kind of the essence of Star Trek. You know, there's, like you said, the debate with Kirk debating whether to, you know, they have the little debate at whether to kill this creature or not. It's a, it's a being. Um, in the end, you know, it has the essence of Star Trek. You know, they make communication with a new life form and learn a little bit about it, and they go about their own ways. So th- there's the essence of Trek in here that I, that I can appreciate. Again, this episode and the first one, they they kind of blend together a little bit too much. So it's not, I don't think it's bad, but obviously, you know, yesteryear is amazing. And I know Lorelei's signal, is it Lorelei? Am I saying it wrong? I have Lorelei. I don't know for sure. I just have Lorelei's signal. I know that's not like a good episode, but there was something different enough about it that I remember it better. Mm-hmm. One of our planets is missing is a little bit on the the forgettable side for me. Well, what is this episode about, gentlemen? Finding new life, learning about it, and not killing it. That doesn't sound very American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's yeah, it's kind of a stretch to think this is really really saying something, but if if it has to then yeah. Just um, exploring, you know, and, and learning versus, um, versus just destroying because, you know, it's different or threatening, you know, but, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It is, it is something of a nondescript episode and it's certainly not memorable and yeah. All right, let's do six degrees for one of our planets is missing. Steve, do you want this one or lower light signal? Do lower light signal. Adam, this one of our planets is missing is the first episode in which Chekhov's replacement, Lieutenant Eriks, speaks. What species is Eriks? Now, I thought this was a hard question. What species is he? I have no idea. Steve? I've heard it and such, but and read about it, but it's just not coming to me right now. Edosian. Mm. E-D-O-S-I-A-N. So I guess it was hard. Good. Steve has two. Moving on. The Lorelei Signal, Season 1, Episode 4. Production code 22006. Original air date, September 29th, 1973. Directed by Hal Sutherland. Written by Margaret Arman. <laughs> The Enterprise investigates a sector of space where starships have been disappearing every 27 years. A strangely compelling music signal lures the Enterprise to a remote planet in the Terelian system, some 20 light years away. The music works on the men of the Enterprise, affecting their judgment and causing them to experience euphoric hallucinations. Ship's Log Supplemental, Lieutenant Uhura Commanding. We have assembled an all-female rescue party in accordance with Mr. Spock's request. Steve, why don't you start us on Lower Life Signal? This is one of these that I've got some interesting notes for. Um, I'll read some excerpts. What's a star year? Stupid grins. All the same women doing tricks. A tear. They're old. And there's enough women in security to man the transporter pads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so well, they they've come a long way since 1969. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. This is the fourth, fifth hypothetical season or whatever. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it is. It is um, certainly more memorable because it's unique. Um, as I've said before, I think the um, all these women looking the same and voiced by the same person who sound the same as Nurse Chapel kind of just make it weird, creepy, and whatever. Um, I, on the positive side, I do think it's cool that Uhura is taking over and taking command, and yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's certainly the high point. Um, I enjoyed that. Um, and then the low point is all of the old men in an urn <laughs> down the planet. I wonder. I wonder if the old men in the urn. Maybe that's where they started with this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I've got this idea of current <laughs> old in an urn. <laughs> Drowning in an urn. But yeah, Uhura taking command is definitely the high point. That is very cool. It's just, honestly, I think it's kind of neat that we get an all-female away team, you know, that the women have to go save them, the men, yeah. in a way. You know, yeah. that's... God, can you imagine that on the original series? Because <laughs> I cannot. I don't think Shatner would really care. <laughs> you know, uh, especially if he's drowning in an urn. We get the little trick of fixing their ailments by using the transporters' original patterns or something. Yep, which we see most prominently in the second season of Next Gen. Probably your trivia trivia question. Um, but it's uh, it's not. Okay. I'm now I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of that's one of the most um, discussed topics in Trek when they you know mostly referencing that second season Next Gen episode because it's kind of of course begs the question. Well, you get old and you can go through the transporter, you know. So yeah, well, it's it's got that same issue with Into Darkness, you know. Yeah. With the, the magic con blood. Yeah. I mean, if this is going to fix anything, then yeah. Okay. I wouldn't knock this episode here, you know, 1973 end of an animated episode that they came up with this idea. Right, right. I, yeah. I think Next Gen is probably a little more fair game. And definitely Into Darkness. What? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like they beam down to a planet of chapels. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a more interesting episode. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I had a, kind of, a question kind of off, to, off this episode topic. Um, I meant to ask it earlier. I mean, why didn't they use um, more of the original music? Is that just rights, or they just wanted to go with a different feel? Does anybody have the answer to that? I don't know that for sure, but I have a feeling it was probably a different feel. Because, you know, nowadays, part of the reason everybody does new music in every episode is there are all these rules with the unions about you have to have X percentage of all new music every time. Um, and more importantly, if you reuse existing music, they still get paid. Right. You still pay yeah. them. But in the original series days, that's not how it was. You you have, you have pay somebody to write some music, and you could re- reuse it in every darn episode after that and never have to pay them again. Um, sometimes that meant they got paid a little bit more up front, but still... My guess is that maybe they could have reused some of that music here and not had to pay, uh, which yeah, I was gonna... for this show means that would be a really good reason to do it. <laughs> well, especially the but title I... credits. That's what that's what the one thing I was wondering why they didn't especially head, head down. I think um, so. Knowing that it probably wouldn't have been super costly for them to reuse some of that music. I don't know. Maybe maybe if you're using it on a different show, there are new rules and it would have cost. I'm I'm not sure how that worked back then, but. I do think they were going for a different kind of feel, you know. They certainly reused, you know, once they had a piece of music written, they reused the heck out of it. That, damn, dan, dan, yeah. dan, 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 dan. <laughs> right. It's like in every single episode of this show, I think. Um, and it really, it's, you hear it and you think of this show. Yeah. Sorry that was off episode topic, but I, went, I forgot to ask that earlier. Off topic too, but for years, and... and it's still true, actually, that most of the music from this show has been lost per- forever. Like, apparently we don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. All we've got, we've got it cooked into the show, of course, part of the episodes. But as 
but you can't like buy the soundtrack CD uh, huh. gotcha. for the animated series. Now, up until a couple of years ago, there was nothing. They had they, you couldn't get anything. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I think they found a couple of tracks you can get now, but you cannot get most of this music. What is this episode about? Looks can be deceiving, I guess. I don't see a beautiful woman. Well, let me just ask though. I mean, did you the story? This idea that the that the men are wearing this. I mean, it's the story seemed a little bit too convoluted even for its own good in this yeah. episode. The guys are they're wearing these things, and then when the women are near them, yeah. their life energy or something is drained. And this happened because something on the planet caused the women to do. You know, I think that the 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 story is so complicated that it would take me as long as the episode to try and <laughs> talk through it. You know, and I think that's what makes it weak. But on the other hand, we remember the planet of chapels. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. For the animated series, I would almost rather have a Lorelei signal than one of our planets is missing. So, yeah, I mean, of the three episodes today, yeah, this story is, I mean, it's distinct. Four. We do four yeah, now. From the other, <laughs> no, from the other three, this episode from the other three. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, it is distinct. You know, you have all the chapels, and it's um, it's different from Beyond the, Beyond the Star and Planets. But, I mean, the story is kind of, like you said, it's not quite as organized and put together. So when I wouldn't call it strong i would call it the weakest of the three today as far as episodes go and like as far as what's kind of what it's about i i mean i i agree with you and steve the high point of it was a horror that this was you know great for this was a great episode for her but beyond that it's um i kind of you know it was kind of just kind of goofy steve is this about anything I'm, I really struggle to come up with something i think it's one of these it's so convoluted i mean maybe if i you know, drew a couple diagrams and thought about it for a couple few hours or something. Maybe I come up with something, but it's 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 difficult to get anything out of it really. It's kind of interesting that they that they gave up immortality. Uh, you know, thinking that it would be a better future for them if they could have other things. I guess I'm not even sure exactly what, but maybe the ability to have children was that part of it or yes and, and that's probably the key to making it about something that they didn't quite do but yeah going down that path that idea but yeah it was hard it was kind of weird to determine you know what um what were they trying to say i did my last my last little uh note here was become as other women what because i remember there was something saying like you will become as other women and i didn't understand what they were talking about well at least they didn't watch turnabout intruder (laughs) (laughs) all right let's do six degrees for the lower light signal steve how many times in either the original series the animated series or the movies other than this episode does uhura assume command of the enterprise Jeez, oh, I, I I don't recall. One, no, Adam. So the question is, how many other times does she assume command beyond this episode? Yes. Um, none. That is that is the correct answer. Hmm. That's a trick, unfair question. But um, where this is uh, structuring the questions this way makes it harder to keep track of. Who's... <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Steve had two, so so it was two to one and uh, two to one. Steve, okay. Uh, let's see, folks. If you will indulge, indulge us, we are going to spend two minutes talking uh, Star Trek Discovery, spoiler free. Well, they have to. They have. They are. They're contractually because uh, I haven't seen it, so it is spoiler free. <laughs> yes, I promise it will be spoiler free. In fact, it'll probably be even faster than the my two minute estimate. Um, my 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 first thoughts one. So at this point, we have seen the two-hour pilot and the first episode. After that, uh, my first thought was that pilot seemed like it was a completely different show. That at the end of the pilot, when they give you a thing that says this season on Discovery, the show they showed there and the show we started watching with the first episode after the pilot seemed like an entirely different show. That was weird. That's not a positive or negative statement, but I wonder if that hadn't been the pilot and they had just started with the other episode, I think it would have worked just fine. And then the other first thought that I had, unless Steve, you wanted to make a Oh, so just to be clear, Adam has not watched it. Steve has. 
unless Steve, you wanted to make a comment on. I don't think so. I agree with that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, and then and I I I liked the first. What is it called? Context is for kings, I believe. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. I do I do kind of miss seeing the title. I was worried about that. I wasn't sure if they were going to put the actually put the titles in the front of the episodes like all other Star Treks. They they do not. Context is for kings. The first episode after the pilot. I liked it. It looks like an interesting show, but we played my. I want I want to. I wanna, talk about one thing here we played the pilot for my six-year-old this was me and my spouse and my son watching this because i think star trek's pretty much always been a family show we watched the pilot together and you know it was fun and he enjoyed it and afterward we talked about it we started watching context is for kings together and i'm not going to spoil anything but i don't know halfway into the episode it was like whoa cover his eyes and this is not for children, and, uh, you know, he went to his room, and we will not be playing him this show anymore. Not when he's six, anyway. Maybe years from now, sure, but... Um, so, and again, I'm not talking about whether it was the most amazing show ever, or a bad show, or an okay show. I'm not talking about the quality. But I'm a little saddened that, to me, Star Trek has always been a family show, and there's very little that I can think of that I would not be... Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm hard pressed to name something like, oh, I wouldn't play my six year old that. I can definitely name for you things that he would not enjoy, <laughs> <laughs> but as far as stuff that I would not be comfortable playing for him, uh, there's not very much in all of Star Trek because it's always been a family kind of show. Just out of curiosity, was it violence or was it sexual? Because Enterprise got a little sexual at times. So it it was not sexual. It was it was uh, kind of some graphic gore. And some scary stuff, but mostly it was it was gore. Um, so I, you know, I I've and since the episode aired, I have looked around on it. I haven't really. It doesn't feel like I'm seeing anybody else talking about that. So maybe I'm the only guy thinking this or feeling this way. And I'm not even. It's not even necessarily a complaint. It's more like just, you know, I'm a little sad that this happened because I I had this vision of this is the first Star Trek show since my son is old enough to really watch television shows, that we could every single... It was like every Sunday at 5.30, my time in California time, we would sit, we were going to order pizza, and we are going to watch this together and talk about it after, and that lasted for the pilot, and that was it. Mm. You know, so I'm a little sad about that. Oh, I was just going to say, do you think that had a bigger impact because you were watching it with your son? Maybe if you were a little bit more prepared for it, it wouldn't have affected you as much? If you'd seen it without... Well, if I'd known it was coming, then he wouldn't have started watching that yeah. episode. There's no, there's no planet where that would have been okay, right. or there's definitely never been any Star Trek that that did that. Right. Definitely, right. definitely. No way. But you, you know the kind of, st- you know the stuff I'm talking about, Steve. Yeah. And I honestly, <clears throat> I don't know if they are just, you know, they've got a little more free reign because of the nature of how they're distributing this, you know, streaming and whatnot, and it's not on TV, and if they're considering that. Um, and how they're marketing it, I, th- I do think it's a f- it's fair statement to probably say that they should have. I don't know how you'd make such a statement, but to say who the target is and that there's something in this, and here's wh- who's who, you know here here's the age range or the target or some kind of rating, you know, like they do in some respect. I think that would have been good. Um, I do also think though, just from, and I mean, m- you know, my daughter's one and a half, so I can't really speak to this, but. You know, I do know, like, my, my brother's kids range in age, you know, all the way up to 10 years old. Oh, yeah. Did they watch it? Did Were they uncomfortable? Um, I, I they... don't. They haven't got to that one yet. They haven't caught up to it as of right now, so I don't I don't know anything about that. Um, but I do know that he and I often speak of um, what the general populace does in respect not to Star Trek, but to movies in general. And, you know, I do think there's uh, there we're in a situation where... The, you know, the majority of people allow their kids under the age of 10 to watch PG-13 movies, you know, anymore. And so I wonder if we're seeing just kind of this escalation, you know, of what's acceptable in the eyes of so many. So I honestly don't know in that sense what the creators of the show, what what they're thinking about that or if they're thinking about it at all in terms of who they're targeting and what's acceptable. 
did they rate it going in? Was the did the TV rating pop up? I don't think so. I mean, like you said, there's different. They have to do it on broadcast televisions, but like you said there might be different rules for um for streaming. Yeah. I did. I did watch one of. The, I did. I have watched these after Trek things that they're doing. I've watched both of those for the you know the pilot two-parter and then this one and at one point i think during the after trek for the pilot two-parter they said something that made me think that they know they have more leeway with streaming of what the, the content of the show well how did you feel about these episodes steve yeah the quality overall in terms of just again we're spoiler free here so i can't go too much into detail but the opening two-parter i thought interesting and kind of bizarre, you know, in in terms of the context of it in a way. But I thought it was, well, this is good, you know, whatever. But it didn't, you know, whatever. But then this third episode, I thought, quite good. I felt really good about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a show that I'm... That show, yeah, the third episode show that looks like what the show is, is a show I'm interested to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really am. I'm, I'm just sad it's going to be me watching it late on a Sunday right, night. Right, right. <laughs> Instead of eating pizza with my yeah. son. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of other Star Trek. You never know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, there's one other thing I very quickly wanted to talk about. Well, at this point, we've had three hurricanes now, mm-hmm. right? There was Texas, Florida, and Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. I think I talked about Texas the last time, but, you know, it's just as devastating everywhere else. And if you can go to the American. Red Cross's website or your organization of choice and donate even a few dollars that really does make a huge difference. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to bring up, um, you know, we are very, we try to be apolitical. I know we have, we have listeners from all walks of life and I, and I respect all points of view. Um, there was a tragedy in Las Vegas earlier this week that again made me revisit some strong feelings I have about certain uh, issues politically. And yes, I'm talking about gun control. And I've, I know some of the people, thank God they're, they're okay, but I know some of the people that were at this thing in Vegas, uh, and those people are scarred for life, and they're the lucky ones. Um, and I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how this show is a show that we do for not money. We do not do this for show for money. It's nonprofit, obviously. In fact, it's the opposite of that because I spend money to pay, <laughs> to pay for the service for this thing. It's a de- um, debt show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, a, it's a debt show. Um, and because I respect all of our listeners, uh, you know, I still go out of my way to keep it pretty apolitical. But I was thinking about Star Trek, and I was thinking about this incredible future. And every time we think about, uh, every time you ask the question for half a century, why is Star Trek still so popular? Why has it survived? Uh, The answer seems to always be, it has this hopeful view of the future that eventually love is going to unite us all and we're all going to be, you know, one species and we're going to sense that as we go out and encounter other species and it's going to bring humans together. This is what Star Trek is to me. It's this, this is what makes it so so great is is this underlying positive hopeful view of humanity that Gene Roddenberry clearly had that we will as a species survive. We humans will learn to not just live with and tolerate our differences, but to embrace them. And I think if you love Star Trek, which you obviously do, because not only do you listen to our podcast, but you're still listening (laughs) at the end of this episode. (laughs) Um, If you love Star Trek, then you must see value in protecting and respecting all human life. And if you haven't thought about that in a while... You know, I invite you to do so. I think this tragedy in Las Vegas is, I would rather it never happened, but it did happen. And if we could all become 
0.1% better people because of it. If we all decide that we are going to leave the world a tiny bit better than we found it, then I feel like the wonderful future of Star Trek will be here a lot sooner than the 23rd century. So, okay. I Like I said, I, I really got out of my way to not talk about stuff like this in, on our show, uh, but I really felt like I needed to this one time. So, I am excited to discuss the next four episodes of the animated series in two weeks. And uh, I'm also excited to talk about, to, to excuse me, watch, continue watching Discovery. We're not going to make a regular thing of this, I promise, but it is a new Star Trek show, and it was worth talking about Discovery just for a minute. Anyway, uh, thank you, folks. This episode went a little longer than anticipated, but I appreciate you sticking with us. Until next time, take it easy. Bye, guys. See you. I passed it.